Hello, friends. Here's a quick story. In 1994, a young girl who lives in Ohio was four years old when she began talking to her mother after her bath. Mommy, I used to give you baths when you were a baby, she said. Oh, really, her mom replied. Uh Uh-huh. You cried, Abby said. I did, said her mom. Yep, Abby responded. I was your grandma. Her mother got goosebumps because Abby said it so matter-of-factly. And what was your name, her mother asked. She remembers her hair standing on end as Abby considered the question, tapping her mouth with her little fingers. Lucy, Ruthie, that's it, Ruthie, she finally said. Since this actually was the name of little Abby's great-grandmother, long since passed in 1985, her mother tried to ask her more questions, but she did not say anything else. Hello again, friends and fellow truth seekers. Mike Nichols here with another episode of the Soul Unleashed podcast, where my goal is to help you with the questions you might have regarding the awakening of your soul, and particularly help other left brain types like I am to ask the right questions in our search for a deeper meaning to life. Ultimately, I want to help you unleash your soul from limiting beliefs and smothering paradigms. Let's dive in with today's adventure. Well, this episode deals with examples I've come across a number of times in my spiritual awakening, and it's related to the concept of reincarnation, and more specifically to the concept of children who provide evidence that they may have lived previous lives. The example that I started with about Abby is from a book by Dr. Jim Tucker entitled Before, Children's Memories of Previous Lives. It was published in uh, 2021. It is an updated version of two of his previous books, Life Before Life and Return to Life, both of which are about the same subject, the past life memories of children. And I don't want to keep you hanging here about Abby because there are hundreds of better examples. I'll discuss a few more later. But that was all that little Abby ever said. Her mother heard about the books that describe such encounters with children, and she contacted the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia which is where Dr. Jim Tucker is from, and they conducted the research into this case. Abby's case, just that little exchange that she had with her mother, is what they call unsolved, meaning that although they were able to easily confirm the name of her great-grandmother, they weren't able to get any further evidence from Abby. Meanwhile, Abby's mother remained convinced that there was no way that Abby could have known that. Her mother confirmed that for a period of time, when she was a baby, that her grandmother did take care of her and certainly bathed her. But most of us, even as adults, don't know the names of our great-grandparents, let alone anything about those that concept at age four. Now, I know this is a little bit out there, the whole concept of children remembering past lives. And of course, a few years ago, I would have thought that even this topic was completely crazy, maybe even in some way abuse of of the child by their parents or loved ones. But I've been impressed and surprised, honestly, by the amount of serious scientific evidence and the method of serious scientific inquiry that has gone into this particular topic. 
I assume that if you're listening to this podcast, you might think like I used to think, that this is nuts, right? Unless there could be some credible evidence that maybe there is some truth behind this. Ironically, Dr. Tucker is clear to stress in his book that despite all the evidence he's compiled, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of pages and thousands of case studies, I think they've got like 2,500 case studies of children that have had these memories. He considers none of it proof of reincarnation. He calls it evidence. And it's evidence that he's putting together in a scientific method that we can personally weigh to determine if it was something that we would consider a reality. And the acceptance or the threshold for that acceptance, I think, varies with each of us. And if it was true, what would that mean? Well, I suppose my threshold, if you will, has been lowered since I've had my own spiritual awakening. I now believe in reincarnation and that our consciousness survives somewhere after we die. But I'm still learning and exploring like many of you. However, I am fascinated by this type of evidence, particularly these kind of case studies. And when they're rigorously presented, I am attracted even that much more to them. I never really thought about remembering who I was. That would be kind of weird to me. But one common thing that they discovered with these children is that their memories are of relatively recent deceased people. It's not like they suddenly start quoting Shakespeare and announce that they were the bard or that they remember jousting with Sir Lancelot. No, they have a more recent memory. And the good thing about that is it makes it easier for the scientists conducting the research to check and verify the kind of things they're remembering. In fact, the median time between the death of the previous personality they remember and the birth of the subject, the child in question, the medium time is only 15 to 16 months. Very few of them have reported being famous personalities, and almost all of them describe ordinary lives, but often ending in very unpleasant ways. Here's another one. In 1992, John McConnell, he was a retired New York City policeman, and he was working as a security guard. He saw two men robbing an electronics store and pulled out his pistol. However, there was a third thief that he didn't see behind the counter who began shooting at John. John was hit. He tried to shoot back, and even after he fell, he got up and shot again. He was hit six times. One of the bullets entered his back and sliced through his left lung, his heart, and the main pulmonary artery, the blood vessel that takes blood from the right side of the heart to the lungs to receive oxygen. John was rushed to the hospital, but he did not survive. John had been close to his family, and he'd frequently told one of his daughters, Doreen, no matter what, I'm always going to take care of you. Well, five years after John died, Doreen gave birth to a son named William. William began passing out frequently soon after he was born. Doctors diagnosed him with a condition called pulmonary valve atresia, in which the valve of the pulmonary artery has not adequately formed, so blood cannot travel to the lungs. In addition, one of the chambers of his heart, it happened to be the right side, the right ventricle, had not formed properly as a result of the problem with the valve. He underwent several surgeries and has done quite well. As you probably guessed by now, William had birth defects that were very similar to the fatal wounds suffered by his grandfather. In addition, when he became old enough to talk, he began talking about his grandfather's life. Now, he didn't even know who his grandfather was or never met him. But one day when he was three years old, he was acting up. 
and his mother said, sit down or I'm going to spank you. William replied to her, mom, when you were a little girl and I was your daddy, you were bad a lot of times and I never hit you. Of course, his mother was initially taken back by this. But as William talked more about the life of his grandfather, whom he, of course, had never known, she began to feel comforted by the idea that her father had returned. William talked about being his grandfather a number of times, and he discussed his death. He told his mother that several people were shooting during the incident. Now, he's three years old, right? He told his mother that several people were shooting during the incident when he was killed, and he asked a lot of questions about it. One time he said to his mother, when you were a little girl and I was your daddy, what was my cat's name? You mean Maniac, she asked him. No, no, not that one, William answered, the white one. Boston, his mom asked. Yeah, William responded. I used to call him Boss, right? And that was correct, of course. When she was growing up, the family had two cats named Maniac and Boston when Doreen was growing up. The family had two cats, Maniac and Boston, and the only and only John, her father, referred to the white one as Boss. One day, Doreen asked William if he remembered anything about the time before he was born. He said that he died on Thursday and went to heaven. He said that he saw animals there and also talked to God. He said, I told God I was ready to come back and I got born on Tuesday. Doreen was amazed that William mentioned days, since he did not even know the days of the week without prompting. To test him, she said, So you were born on a Thursday and died on Tuesday? He quickly responded, No, I died on Thursday at night and was born Tuesday in the morning. He was correct on both counts. John died on a Thursday at the hospital, and William was born on a Tuesday five years later. This event was investigated and reported as solved by the scientific team because they could verify the information. The goal of the division of perceptual studies has been to determine the best explanation for the statements by these children and to see if science should consider reincarnation as a possibility. I'll put the links to all this, Dr. Tucker's books and some other books and videos in the show notes. I'm really interested in interviewing any parents or subjects who have been through this, however, and not for the sensationalism of, of the event, but, but to understand how you deal with something like this. I mean, if this were my child and he suddenly told me that he was my grandfather or something and said things that validated it, I'd be like, oh, help me, Jesus. It's hard enough to raise the three or four-year-old without, without all this stuff, too. The last thing on my mind would be some deep spiritual reflection on reincarnation. So I wonder how parents dealt with this, how they dealt with their child saying something like this, especially uh, becoming a celebrity in some cases and uh, being investigated by these scientists. And to take the weirdness to a whole different level, in some cases, the families of the child actually met the families of the person who was the deceased entity. And uh, there, were, there were cases where a child would say something like, you're not my mother, or mom, you're not my mommy, two or three years old, you're not my mommy. And once they did the investigation, they found things that did track with who that child was in a previous life. They tracked down that family and they compared a lot of things. And sure enough, um, it appeared to be that person. And they actually introduced one family to the other. So that, that strikes me as really unusual. So I want to tell you just one more story before I wrap up this particular podcast. And 
we could go on for a long time talking about this, and I haven't even got into the scientific rigor with which Dr. Tucker went through all this. I'll do that. I'll do that in a different podcast. But there's a story about a, a young man named Grant. He was a little boy who, from a very early age, told his mother that he was not that she was not his only mommy. When he was five, he asked his parents if they remembered when he was in the war. He said that he was he was in the army, and he described being on the beach and in the jungle. He said that it was 1969, and when his parents asked him if he was talking about Vietnam, he told them he was. What was he? He was age five, I think, right? That would have weirded me out. But he said he had died in an explosion when he was 21. He gave the state he was from, and he gave his last name, an unusual one. In the book, Dr. Tucker calls the last name Slavin, which is not the real name because he didn't want to use the real name, but it was an unusual last name. Slavin. His mother went to the Vietnam Memorial website where they have all the list of names, and she was shocked to see that there was a soldier named Slavin from the state that Grant had said, talked about when he was killed in the war when he was 21. She showed Grant pictures of various men on the site, and when they got to Slavin's, he said, Oh, yes, that's me. Well, that's weird. His mother then contacted our office meaning his office, uh, Tucker's office, and agreed to an interview. Before meeting the family, Dr. Tucker joined a virtual newspaper archive site, and he accessed Slavin's obituary. Following the leads from it, he was able to obtain certain details about his life, including his family's address when he was in high school. So then he went and met Grant, the young boy, and his parents in their home in a city in the middle of the United States, and his parents came across as totally reasonable people. They were Catholic, although they weren't devout types. A lot of these people in these stories turn to be Catholic. That's weird. They were Catholic, and his father in particular had initially been quite skeptical about past life connection. Dr. Tucker brought along pictures to use as tests for Grant, who at that point was five years old. He showed him pairs of photographs, one from Slavin's life, along with a control picture, one that had nothing to do with him. And then when he showed Grant a picture of Slavin's family house along with the control picture, he, these, were, these were sets of pictures he was showing him. So two pictures, one was bogus, one was good. When he showed Grant a picture of the family house along with the control picture, Grant said he didn't remember either one. Of course, Tucker didn't know how the appearance of the house may have changed over the last 50 years. He then showed him a picture of the house across the street from the Slavin home along with the control picture, and he pointed to the correct one and said he remembered it. Slavin, the one who had died, went to, a, went to a place called Central High School. And when Tucker showed him pictures of two large Central High Schools, both named Central High School, the child pointed to the correct one and said he had been to it. After he met Grant that first time, he continued searching online for information about Slavin. He was eventually able to actually access his high school yearbook from 1968, the year he graduated. He then emailed electronic copies of pages from the yearbook, along with pages from another 1968 yearbook from a different Central High School, to Grant's mother. He sent three pairs of pages, one page showing the school's administrators, one page showing the teachers, and another page showing students. He didn't even tell Grant's mother which pages were the correct one. Grant picked the one from Slavin's school for all three pairs. When Tucker told Grant's mother, the results, she said, oh, wow, that's absolutely crazy. I'm blown away. They were all right. He was so casual about it. 
Anyway, Tucker continued to do sleuthing here about, about Grant. He wrote to Slavin's sister, the soldier that was killed, and her daughter sent him some family photographs. Again, he sent Grant's mother pairs for each of Slavin's parents. Again, he did not tell the mother which pictures were correct. At that point, Grant asked his mother why he had to keep taking tests. He sounds like a five-year-old. He didn't make a choice for the mothers, although he did ask if we had a better picture, we being him. He did ask if there was a better picture of the second woman, which was actually Slavin's mother. So he asked for a better picture of that person. For the fathers, he, he correctly picked each one. So altogether, they showed Grant eight pairs of pictures, and for the ones he made a selection, which were six of them, he was right on six of six. And that's how they kind of did the work to compare who Grant was and, and how he was related to Slavin. So Dr. Tucker's careful to say here that that's how they kind of go about their work. They're very, they approach each, each case with an open mind, and then they work to determine as carefully and methodically as they can whether there's evidence to support the child's claims about a past life. And his conclusion is here that adding together the evidence from case after case after case, it starts to look undeniable that there are actual instances where children can remember past lives. And he thinks it's just going to continue to grow. When he started this work back in 1996, or when he joined Dr. Ian Stevenson in 1996, there was no internet. And now with the internet, people can find them a lot easier. So he's getting a lot more cases and a lot more uh, children being reported uh, at the University of Virginia. And they're doing a lot more studies. I think that's probably why he's coming out with so many books lately. He said he was able to give another test similar to Grant uh, with another little boy about the same age, five. And that little boy was five out of five. So he, he also said that, you know, the children generally forget all about this. I wonder how parents wrestle with this. What do you do with this? There's, a, there's another famous case about a young boy remembering that he was a fighter pilot in World War II. And those parents, you know, wrote a book and there's a movie about it and they... They actually profited quite a bit, I guess, off of that child. But Tucker says that in all 99.9% of the cases, there's nothing paid for the child. Uh, they deliberately don't pay anything because they don't want to influence the family. And in, in poorer countries, there's nobody to pay them. So he thinks that the, the memories the, children's have are, the children have are, are very valid. And that's his conclusion as a scientist. And for me, you know, it's just another piece in the puzzle that I'm putting together as my soul unleash process continues. Mediums, psychics, those those people are, are corresponding or communing with other entities or other intelligences outside of this world. But this particular research being done by the Division of, of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia is kind of a whole different thing where they're using actual evidence to document things that just can't be coincidental. So that's some food for thought for you for today's podcast. Went a little bit long, but I want to include some of the actual stories of things that were going on. Obviously, I find them very fascinating, and I hope you do too. And I'll include more about this as, as I go on through this process. I know many of you are interested because you've written to me. So if you want to just check out the resources that I've got listed in the show notes, uh, for the podcast, I'll put them up underneath the uh, the podcast itself. Again, if you can leave a review for my podcast, I really appreciate it. Hit the subscribe button; you always know when I release a new episode. 
which should be Tuesdays and Thursdays. And it helps other people find me too. Awesome people like you. So thank you. See you again next week. Bye.